fatalism. And with all that I have been saying over the past few weeks, some of you may actually think that I have been teaching fatalism. That is, resign yourself to the fact that certain future events, to include suffering, to include my suffering, is a matter of fate. It's inevitable. It's, It's predetermined. There's nothing at all you can do about it. You might as well just accept it and take it like a man. Like the man who falls down a set of stairs, stand up and says, good, I'm glad that's over. <laughs> Fatalism is one way to deal with suffering, but I want you to understand I am not teaching that. We'll, we'll come back to that this morning. A couple of other ways to deal with life's challenges, which I, I think were represented in, in something that I heard this week. Can I, can I make some comments about a political speech that I heard without sounding political? Uh, in fact, I promise you that at the end of my comments, you'll have no idea who I'm voting for. Although you can probably make a guess since I've been voting the same way for decades. But, but I just want to make some observations. It, it might be because of what I've been um, studying lately But there were some statements made on a national stage that caught my attention. I listened to Mitt Romney's acceptance speech at the Republican National Convention last Thursday. He started out by talking about how we as a nation began the last four years with hope. Maybe with all of the promises about change, things would get better. Well, of course, Romney was quick to point out they haven't. Which, which highlighted, in his opinion, another way of, of dealing with life's challenges. Blame it on somebody else. It's somebody else's fault that I'm suffering. Well, that led the Republican nominee to a mini crescendo in his speech. This was the hope and change America voted for. It's not just what we wanted. It's not just what we expected. It's what Americans deserve. Really? Well, that, that caught my attention. We, we deserved it. It caught the attention of the audience as well. There was a rousing standing ovation. And, and why do you deserve better? Well, Romney suggested it's because, well, you're Americans. It's a, it's a birthright. And you've worked harder than ever. You're industrious. And, well, you're just plain good. That's another way to approach life's challenges. We talked about it last week. What goes around comes around. It's that principle of sowing and reaping. Work hard. Work really hard. And unless someone kind of comes along in the White House and messes it up, you'll be rewarded. Again, this led to a similar, another similar crescendo. Now is the moment where we can stand up and say, I am an American. I make my destiny. We deserve better. My children deserve better. My family deserves better. My country deserves better. Rousing ovation to the chance of USA. USA. Really? We make our own destiny? We deserve better? I don't want to rain on anybody's patriotic parade, but, but why? 
got me a little fired up, in case you can't tell. I, I couldn't help but wonder, how would that speech work in a little prison in Egypt a few millenniums ago? You're of a favored nation, Joseph. Well, not, not a nation yet, but it's, it's, it'll, it'll be almost as good as being an American. And, and remember the promises. Joseph, remember your hopes. Remember those dreams. You deserve better, Joseph. Ah, it's your brother's fault. It's Mrs. Potiphar's fault. You worked hard in the midst of economic uncertainty. You deserve better. And if this is the way we think, we take God completely out of the equation. Most of us, you see, have lived long enough to know that you don't always reap what you sow. Now, we will eventually, we get that, but maybe not right now. I mean, sometimes you don't get what's coming to you. Sometimes you get what you don't deserve. How many times have you said to your kids, or maybe your parents said it to you, as you complained about something being unfair, they looked at you and said, life's not fair. You might as well figure that out. You'll get along better. So, when life's not fair, what do we do about it? Well, we can always blame somebody else. It's the government's fault. It's the Democrats' fault. It's the Republicans' fault. Oh, or we can adopt a victim mentality. I don't know if you've noticed, but victimhood is really in. I'm a victim. You may not know it, you're a victim, because everybody's a victim. I don't deserve this. I'm not saying that there are not victims. There are. But remain a victim and where does that leave you? Victimized, in despair, paralyzed. And maybe that's where you are this morning. Maybe that's where you've been for some time. A victim in deep despair and paralyzed. I want you to know that there's, another, that there's another way to view the trials of life, especially for followers of Jesus Christ. You see, we serve a God who knows everything and is working everything out according to His grand and glorious plan. That's, that's not fatalism. Fatalism, you see, leaves the challenges of life to unintelligent, unloving, arbitrary, capricious chance. You're destined to fall down the stairs. Might as well do it. There's nothing you can do about it. And there's no purpose, by the way. You just do. The Christian perspective is God lovingly determines times and seasons and events. That all things, that all things, while they may not be good, they are for our good. We don't always get what we deserve. We, we sometimes get what we don't deserve. 
But God is always at work for our best and for His great glory. Are you facing an uncertain tomorrow? I know that some of you are. I, I know that. Received a phone call from somebody this week from our church. Two to six months to live. God knows your tomorrow infallibly. You don't. So and why not trust it to the one who does? Joseph is in prison in Egypt. He's just about hit rock bottom. After being sold into slavery by very loving brothers who hated him, he, he found himself a slave to Potiphar, the captain of the bodyguard, in a foreign country, all at the ripe old age of 17. He might have been a little bratty, but he certainly didn't deserve this. But after doing his very best, working hard, he deserved better, right? I mean, the Lord was with him. And as a result, Potiphar's household prospered. He deserved better. And he found himself the immoral desire of Potiphar's wife. Didn't see that coming. That doesn't seem quite right. That, that doesn't seem quite fair. Well, after successfully resisting her temptation again and again, remaining holy and faithful to God, God richly rewarded him, right? After fleeing from her, he was falsely accused of attempted rape. No problem. He'd done the right thing. Innocent until proven guilty. Justice would prevail. And he found himself falsely imprisoned in chains. It could hardly get any worse. But it does. All in the midst of right behavior. He did not deserve this, well, at least from our perspective. But now God had him, has him right where he wants him, all according to the glorious plan. God was preparing him, and now God was just about ready to elevate Joseph to the second highest position in the land. Because Joseph deserved that? No. God was in the process of fulfilling his promises. He's going to move this family to, of Jacob to Egypt, and he's going to make a great nation of him there. It's going to result in your salvation. Notice, I said Joseph was about at rock bottom. That he was about to rise to the second highest position in the land. It's not quite time. He has to go all the way down for two more years. You know, by now, uh, he could have become quite fed up with this whole mess. This God thing's not working for me. Does anybody know how long the events of chapter 39 um, uh, take? Just 39 that we looked at last week. 11 years. Not sure what the breakdown is between slave and prisoner, but for 11 years he was a slave, then a prisoner. And now we'll find Two more years in chapter 40. The 
biblical record never records him complaining. We never see him griping. He just did his best and trusted in the sovereignty of God. Listen to me. Christianity has never promised an easy road. I don't care what the TV preachers say. Never promised an easy road, but it is the right road. And we can trust God for the results. You see, in our chapter this morning, God brings Joseph into contact with a couple of the king's prisoners, a cupbearer and a baker, that will ultimately bring him into contact with Pharaoh, which will result in the salvation of multitudes of people. It's going to get Jacob down to Egypt. It's going to result in our salvation, but it's going to take two more miserable years. So how long have you been in your pit? How long have you been in slavery? How long have you been in prison through no fault of your own? Yeah, maybe you've been a little bratty, but you don't deserve this, right? I cannot promise that it will be over tomorrow. I can promise that there is a God who is in your tomorrow He knows all things, and He knows what He is doing, and it is right and good. Turn to Genesis chapter 40 if you're not already there. Let me give you the outline of the chapter as we get ready to jump into it. We're going to meet a couple of uh, two new dreamers, and we're going to hear two new dreams, and then those two new dreams are going to be interpreted, and then those dreams are going to be fulfilled. This is great. Kind of reminds us of of Joseph's two dreams. This gives us a glimmer of hope. And then we'll see the same old dreamer with the same old miserable story. Feel like that? The author Moses is brilliant. He builds suspense. Could could this be it? Dreams are fulfilled. What about Joseph's dreams? Could this finally spell the end of his trial, the end of sorrow and pain? Not quite. Let's begin by reading the first four verses of Genesis chapter 40. Then it came about after these things, after he was falsely accused and ended up in prison. The cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt offended their lord, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was furious with his two officials, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. So he put them in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, in the jail, the same place where Joseph was in prison. How how lucky. The captain of the bodyguard put Joseph in charge of them, and he took care of them, and they were in confinement for some time. We are introduced to two um, new characters in the drama. I want you to know something. The only reason they're in the story is to advance God's story. Here's the truth. You're going to be in God's story, His grand story, His plan for the ages. Everybody is going to be in God's story one way or the other. You will either appear in his story as one of his own, or you will appear simply as a pawn to advance his magnificent story. Two characters God uses advance the story, cupbearer and baker. A couple of officials of Pharaoh, probably nobles. It's obvious from their titles what their responsibilities were. The cupbearer served wine to the king, tasted it before he gave it to him. 
The, 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 the baker provided various breads and cakes for the king's table. We read that they had offended, or more literally, they had sinned against their Lord in some way. Many think, I think rightly, that Pharaoh probably became sick, probably to the point of death. These two were likely accused of poisoning him. They were placed in prison while the investigation was underway. Uh, later, we'll find the investigation probably fingers the baker. The baker's guilty, which means the cupbearer was innocent. Just like Joseph. And where was he? In prison. Just like Joseph. Think about that. Here was someone else who faced an unjust imprisonment just like Joseph to further God's purposes. God was using someone else to fulfill his plan, someone else who faced an unjust trial just like Joseph. You see, Joseph was not alone in the trial and neither are you. In other words, that old song, nobody knows the trouble I've seen, nobody knows my sorrow, probably not true. It's wrong on at least two counts. First, you are not alone in your trouble. And second, there is, there is someone who knows your sorrow. At our Wednesday morning men's Bible study, we were in Psalm 56, and Steve Nichol, who teaches it, reminded us from that chapter. He reminded us, when we are opposed, when we are trampled, uh, when foes have trampled us all day long, when we are afraid, we trust. Because there is always somebody who knows my sorrow. In fact, verse 8 said, and he read it, I thought of you. You, God, have taken account of my wanderings. Put your tears, uh, put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? God knows. He knows right where you are. He's recorded every tear that has fallen. You're not alone when you suffer either. There's another verse most of us know. 1 Peter chapter 5 says, Be of sober spirit. Be on the alert. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And then we're left standing before the gaping mouth of the evil lion. Read that to your kids as a bedtime story. Only verses 9 and 10 follow. But resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that, well, you're not alone. The same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brothers and sisters who are in the world and after you have suffered for just a little while. The God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself, this is what he's doing through your sufferings, by the way, he will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He knows what he's doing. So our suffering is shared. It is only for a little while. How long is a little while? We'll come back to that. But for Joseph, it was 13 years. I have no idea how long yours will last. But this is an encouragement to not live in victimhood. To not live in your own pity party. To, to not think that you're alone, even if it feels like you're alone. Not only is God with us, others have faced the same trials and have triumphed. And so can you. 
there is a difference between Joseph and the cupbearer, between us and, and the world. The fact is, we have a heavenly Father who sovereignly controls our lives for what is best. Now, make no mistake about it, He's sovereignly in control of everybody's lives. But He has, for those who love Him, He has our best in mind. I mean, look at verse 3. These two were placed in the very same place where Joseph was imprisoned. How fortunate. No. How providential. We, there's no such thing as coincidence. We don't believe in coincidence for God's people. God's hand of intervention was at work again. He's moving the pawns, fulfilling his plan. He's sitting up there going, King's Pawn 4 to prison. God might have even made Pharaoh sick. Ty doesn't make people. Who is it that makes man mute? Who is it that makes him deaf? Make no mistake about it. Take a close look at verses 3 and 4. We read that Pharaoh put these two in confinement of the house of the captain of the bodyguard. And the captain of the bodyguard assigned them to Joseph. Now, if we look at chapter 39, verse 1, we see that the captain of the bodyguard was a guy named Potiphar. Now, it's possible that there was more than one captain of the bodyguard. None likely. There was a definite article before the title. This is the captain of the bodyguard, which likely indicates there was only one. If this is the case, then this is further evidence that Potiphar didn't believe his wife. That he trusted Joseph. He was serving in his very own prison that was attached to his house. I mean, it's like he moved him from the house. He said, all right, well, she's, all right, fine, I'll have to move you to prison. Why don't you take care of things over there? And Potiphar assigned these two important prisoners to Joseph. You see, God was in charge of this whole mess. This is like he's in charge of yours. That takes us to the dreams, verses 5 to 8. Look at that with me. Verse 5 says, Then the cupbearer and the baker for the king of Egypt, who were confined in jail, both had a dream the same night, each man with his own dream and each dream with his own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning and observed them, behold, they were dejected. He asked Pharaoh's officials who were with him in confinement in his master's house, Why are your faces so sad today? Then they said to him, We have had a dream and there is no one to interpret it. Then Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God Tell it to me, please. I shared with you earlier that, uh, that dreams come in pairs in Joseph's story. He had two dreams. The Pharaoh's going to have two dreams. The two, Joseph's two dreams, same meaning. Pharaoh's two dreams, same meaning. But here, two different dreams with two different meanings. Now, in Egyptian culture, uh, in fact, in many cultures with no knowledge of God, dreams were very, very important. As a result, there were dream interpreters all over the place in ancient Eastern cultures. They had volumes of, of, of dream books that they would consult for dream interpretations. Now, yes, God uses dreams in the Scripture to communicate truth. He does that. Sometimes he, 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 in a dream, he'll speak to them. Sometimes he gives them a, a vision. He does that. Sometimes people ask me today about dreams and dream interpretations. Joel says, in the last days, people will dream dreams. And the implication is that there's more to the, some of those dreams than the, perhaps the one that you had last night. Apart from scriptural, uh, clear scriptural teaching about dreams, I am very hesitant to come up with a theology of dreams. 
Most of what we know about dreams comes from narrative, that is story. And we should always be very careful to build a doctrine around historical story, around historical narrative. All that to say this, if you have dreams, I don't know if they're from God or not. They might be, might not be. I also want you to know this, I am not a dream interpreter. I also want you to know this. The one that you had about showing up at school in your underwear, everybody's had it. It doesn't mean anything. <laughs> These two guys were in prison, and there were no professional dream interpreters available. Since they each had a similar dream the same night, which they'd obviously talked about, they figured there must be something to this particular dream. And, and we know from the rest of the chapter, these dreams were given by God because they will eventually uh, be used to affect Joseph's deliverance. And again, because of the prevalence of, of dreams in the culture, God uses them to fulfill his purpose, to include here foretelling the future. In fact, all six dreams, all three pairs foretell the future. No dream interpreters. So these prisoners were dejected. They know it means something. Joseph is responsible for their care. He comes in and notices they were in despair. Stop right there. If Joseph, after being sold by his brothers into slavery, falsely accused by Mrs. Potiphar, wrongly in prison, had developed a self-focused victim mentality... He would have never noticed or even cared about these guys. But even in the midst of his trial, he saw the pain of others. What if he had been focused on himself? What if he had missed the appointment? What if he had missed what God was doing? God had gone to great lengths to get him right where he was. This is actually a critical point in the narrative that Joseph could have missed if he was living as a victim, paralyzed. Good reminder that while we may be suffering, others are too. We should look for opportunities to care even when we need care. So Joseph says, tell me why you look so sad. These two tell Joseph they each had a dream, no one to interpret. Joseph quickly corrects their faulty theology. In the midst of a pagan culture, he speaks of one, the true and the living God, who can alone interpret dreams. Those dream books, even if you had them, wouldn't help. Please notice that Joseph was aware of God's presence. Listen, there is one who knows dreams and can interpret dreams Tell it to me, that means God's right here in the midst of my trial. He hasn't forgotten me. He knows where I am. F further, he is implicitly saying, I believe in dreams. God gave me dreams too. Yeah, I'm in the middle of Egypt, but I still have faith in God. I've been here 11 years. But I still believe that God's going to keep the promise that he gave me. My brothers are all going to bow down to me. I look a little raggedy right now, but that's going to happen. Tell, tell me your dreams. See, Joseph, Joseph's name made it into 
Hebrews, one of those four times that his name is mentioned in the New Testament is in Hebrews chapter 11, that hall of, of faith, which gives us a definition of faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In the middle of a prison in Egypt, I believe God. Leads to the interpretation of the dreams, verses 9 to 19. Let's read that. It's a long passage, okay, but so don't check out. Look at it. Chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream, behold, there, were, there was a vine in front of me, and on the vine were three, and three becomes very important, three branches. And, and as it was budding, its blossoms came out, and its clusters produced ripe grapes. Now Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, so I took the grapes and squeezed them into Pharaoh's cup, and I put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. Then Joseph said to him, Simple. This is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. And you will put Pharaoh's cup into his hand according to your former custom when you were his cupbearer. Good news for you. Only keep me in mind when it goes well with you. And please do me a kindness by mentioning me to Pharaoh and get me out of this house. For I was also wrongly in prison. I was kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews. And even here I've done nothing that should have put me into the dungeon. When the chief baker saw that he had interpreted favorably, he said to Joseph, I also saw in my dream, and behold, there were three baskets of white bread on my head, and, and in the top basket there were some uh, there were some of all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh, and the birds were eating them out of the basket on my head, and I didn't do anything about it. And then Joseph answered and said, this is the, its interpretation, the three baskets are three days? Yeah, this is great. Within three more days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. Wonderful, this is great from you. And will hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh off you. Moses is a masterful writer. I can't wait to talk to him about it. How did, he, how did he come up with that stuff? I know it's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but that was good stuff. Uh, we first read of the cupbearer's dreams, corresponding interpretation. Clever use of three throughout both dreams. The cupbearer says there's a vine with three um, branches. And the vine did three things. You, you need to see this. It did three things. It budded, it blossomed, and it produced grapes. So I did three things. I took the grapes, I squeezed the grape, and I put the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Pharaoh and cup are each used three times. And so Joseph goes, he keeps counting. And he's telling one, two, three, one, two. Oh, this means something. Um, the branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. Hebrew idiom, by the way. Uh, he will lift up your head from out of here. You'll be released to serve the Pharaoh in the same way as you did before. And notice, by the way, he says, and when this happens, most assuredly this will happen. Great confidence in God. When this happens, remember me. I too was falsely imprisoned. I don't belong in this dungeon. And the word dungeon is actually the word pit. The same word is in verse thir uh, chapter 37. When they threw him down, stripped him of his robe and threw him into the pit. Because I didn't deserve that pit. I don't deserve this pit. Remember me. Chief Baker saw the interpretation was favorable, so he was encouraged. He launches into his dream of threes. In my dream, I saw three baskets of white bread on my head, and the birds were eating the bread out of the top basket. And Joseph actually uses a rather gory pun to give the interpretation. In three days, the, 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 the favor will lift up your head. He uses the same Hebrew idiom, but he adds, he will lift up your head 
from you and hang you on a tree and the birds of the air will eat your flesh. This three days, you die. And it's actually worse because the birds of the air are going to eat your flesh in a culture that highly valued the body and the afterlife. Um, they buried, took great pains to bury the body and even embalm the body. Now, don't, don't, miss, the, don't miss the fact that, 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 that Joseph gave the proper interpretation of that particular dream, even though it was unpleasant. I, this is all I'm going to say. This is all I'm going to say. God's people communicate God's truth, even if God's truth is unpleasant. I, I'll just leave it at that. Which brings us to the fulfillment, verses 20 to 22. Look at it. Thus it came about on the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, that he made a feast for all his servants. And he lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. And he restored the chief cupbearer to his office, and he put the cup into Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker just as Joseph had interpreted to them. Not a lot to comment on there. The dreams were fulfilled precisely as Joseph said three days later. Now, now think about that. When Joseph first heard, kind of comment on this already, but when Joseph first heard these guys had dreams, he could have said, dreams, which means I don't believe in dreams. Dreams have not worked for me. But somehow he knew they were from God, just like he knew his dreams were from God. And, and he knew that despite very difficult trials, listen to me, he knew that despite very difficult trials, nothing would keep God from fulfilling his promises. Is that true to you? That no matter how difficult your life might be right now, nothing is going to keep God from fulfilling his promises to you. God uses these two guys as pawns to the fulfillment of his purposes. Lifts them out. But now let's go back to prison. Don't you think that at this moment that Joseph is a little bit encouraged? He's maybe even excited. Don't you think that he had reason to think that his deliverance was right around the corner? I'm sure he woke up the fourth day thinking, this is it? I'm going to get out of here today. Yeah, he must have been busy with his family. Fifth day, this is it? And the sixth day. Seventh day, in the first month, in the second month, in the first year, in the second year. And what happens? Same old story with the same old miserable ending. Look at it with me, verse 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. In the first part of chapter 41, now it happened at the end of two full years. Just like that. Two full years. Joseph was forgotten. His obedient faith, his hard work, got him nowhere. He deserved better. Yeah? You think so? For two more years, he languished in the prison because the cupbearer forgot him. Did God forget him? Listen to me. 
I don't know why God did not give. Those of you who know the story, I have no idea why God did not give the next set of dreams to Pharaoh the next day. I mean, the next week. Why? I mean, we go from chapter, the end of chapter 40 to 41 in two years. What are you doing, God? Couldn't you have given Pharaoh the dream the next week? Why do you have him languishing in prison for two more years? I don't know. But he did. And I know that his purposes are always good and best for his people. So how long have you been in your trial? Weeks? Months? Years? Why? I don't know. But God does. Joseph's will last for 13 miserable years. Had God forgotten him? Has God forgotten you? How long is your trial going to last? As we close, let me go back to Peter. Remember Peter? 1 Peter chapter 5, going to suffer for a little while. He says the same thing in chapter 1. Look at it with me. In this, in your salvation, you, you people, right now, right here, you. You greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, there's a little while. If necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that, and here's the purpose, so that the proof of your faith, being much more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor. Wonderful, this is good news. My suffering is going to result in praise and glory and honor to Christ. At the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. That's, that's, that's faith, being convinced of, of what we haven't seen. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your salvation, this, of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter seems to indicate that suffering, which is just a little while, may last until the revelation of Jesus Christ. That means until Jesus comes back. That, that, that means that your suffering, it might last. Whatever you're going through right now, it might last until the end of days. This is supposed to be good news. Because it is then that we will obtain the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls. So even though we suffer for a little while, maybe during this entire earthly life, we keep our eyes fixed on the end and we rejoice, listen, with joy inexpressible and full of glory. We rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory because God is good and all that he does is always right. Father, I know that there are people in this auditorium who need to be reminded of the truth that you are always in their corner, 
that you have never left them, you've never forsaken them, you've never forgotten them, that you know exactly what you are doing and they are exactly where you want them to be. And so help us to keep our eyes fixed on the outcome of our faith, the salvation of our souls, which results in great honor and glory to you at the coming of Jesus Christ. Joy inexpressible and full of glory. In Christ's name, amen.